Um, I'm going to pray, and then we will be jumping in. If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21, uh, as I said, we've been going through the books of the Kings over the last almost uh, six months or so. And yesterday, last week was the penultimate sermon of the Kings. Even though I finished the Kings last week uh, in 2 Kings, this is the last sermon of the Kings, but it's going to be in Matthew. You'll see and get all that, and it falls on Easter perfect. So I'm going to pray, and then we'll jump in, and we are going to pray for all the churches uh, that are having to preach the gospel through video today, and that their internet holds up and doesn't glitch, and that uh, the Lord would use it, and that for those that are watching, that are, that are Christians, they'll be uh, all inspired of Christ and His resurrection, and for those that are unbelievers watching, that they'll be saved. So let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for um, Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday, where we come together and worship uh, because of Jesus Christ being um, resurrected from the grave, coming back to life, and then therefore extending that to all of us. And so we thank you so much for that, Lord. And we pray for all the churches this morning preaching the gospel um, through this uh, online kind of technology, Lord, that you would use it mightily, that all the internet uh, signals all over the world would hold up, and that, Lord, uh, you, would, you would strengthen the saints and save those who don't know you this morning. Uh, we love you so much, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. He is risen. Let's do it again. Let's do it again. I, I was too fast. This time I'm going to say it, and I want you to just scream it out, and your whole neighborhood's going to hear it. You ready? He is risen. He is risen indeed. Boom. All right. So we are going to look at a couple things first uh, before we get into Matthew chapter 21. And this is kind of a uh, uh, my Vespers or Matins kind of I thought as we get started, it's, it's an introduction of sorts, but I wanted to make sure that we were all uh, in the right headspace as we're going into Matthew 21, thinking about, about Jesus being our king. But in Matthew, I'm sorry, in Mark chapter 16 um, and in John chapter 20, we have the introductions uh, given to us uh, by, the, by the disciples on the resurrection. And so I wanted to highlight just a couple things because um, as we're doing Easter today, you're in a small gathering in your home. We have just a couple people here. You have a couple of people in your house. And there's groups of small little people all over. And so really what we are doing in a lot of ways is reenacting or we're being like the very first Easter, where there was just a few people gathered thinking about the resurrection. So let's read. This is not the text we're preaching. I just wanted to give this as, a, uh, as an intro to, um, to help you during this Easter quarantine, because I know really all of us, deep down in our soul, want to be gathered together with our brothers and sisters in the assembly. And maybe, like, like me, you're sorrowful. You feel deep sorrow that on Easter Sunday, such a special Sunday in the Christian calendar, that you're at home. Uh, and that you're not able to gather together with your brothers and sisters. I've been lamenting and, and feeling sorrowful all week about this, and, and sometimes to the point of tears, just thinking how much I, I really don't like the way it is right now, um, because especially on Easter Sunday, we should be together. So I, I, I put this little part in the beginning of the sermon for us all to feel encouraged. Matthew, Mark chapter 16. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome bought spices that they may go and anoint him. And very early on the first week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. Just, just a few women. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in white robe. And they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who is crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. That's Mark 16, 1 through 7. Now I'm going to flip over to John. Um, and John, that whole thing I just read of Mark summarizes that entire seven verses into verse one, and then he says some more. So John chapter 20, verse one says, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So that, that's all he gives us. And then it says in verse two, where she goes. So go tell the disciples, verse two. So she ran 
and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple. Now, when it says the other disciple, it's talking about John. John's going to get a little braggadocious here because uh, he's going to talk about how he can outrun Peter, but he never mentions himself, so he's, he's a, it's a humble brag. Uh, and so, anyway, uh, it says this, verse 2. So she ran uh, and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going towards the tomb. So it's just Peter and John. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. No clue why that's there. He just wanted to let everybody know he can outrun Peter. Uh, And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who's slow, finally got there, um, following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus, Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, that's John, also went in and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciple went back. Notice this, verse 10. The disciples went back to their homes. To their homes. So just a small little gathering celebrating the very first resurrection. And so in a lot of ways, this Sunday, we're celebrating the resurrection the way they did the very first resurrection in their homes. And it says this, But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb and wept as she stooped to look in the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus was laying, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him. And Jesus said to her, Mary, and he turned to her. So as soon as he said Mary in, in the Jesus voice, she learned, she looked at him in, Ara- in, she, in Aramaic. She said, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father and to my God and to your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he had, and that he had said these things to her. And so in a lot of ways, this Easter, as I said, uh, just a few people in their homes celebrating that very first resurrection. And we, even though we aren't able to gather together in the assembly with our brothers and sisters in Christ, we can rejoice and we can take heart because in, a lot of, in, in one kind of sense, we are celebrating Easter the same way the first Christians did in our homes on this Resurrection Sunday. And so I wanted to uh, point that out to us just as a means of encouragement as we're going into the sermon. Now, uh, as we think about Easter... Um, especially as you think about the cross of Christ, which is really mentioned every Sunday all the way around the Christian calendar. Every Sunday in and out we talk about the cross. We talk about Jesus dying on the cross. Uh, We have to, as gospel ministers, make sure that when we talk about the cross, we also talk about the resurrection. Because as Paul says, if there is no resurrection, we're more to be pitied. Then The resurrection is literally every single thing. So when we share the gospel, when we talk about the cross, rightly so we should talk about the cross. We must never, ever neglect Also emphasizing the resurrection. The resurrection is literally everything. Without the resurrection, it all means nothing. So I wanted to quote a few people making sure that we we can get the full sense of why it is the resurrection is so necessary. Um, some, Some contemporary and some old. So Tim Keller says this. If Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead then why worry about anything of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether you like his teaching, but instead whether he rose from the dead. The resurrection is everything. John MacArthur, the truth of the resurrection gives life to every other area of gospel truth. The resurrection is the pivot on which all of Christianity turns and without which Uh, None of the other truths would matter. Without the resurrection, Christianity would be so much wishful thinking, taking its place alongside all other human philosophy and religious speculation. And so the resurrection is everything. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, 
Emmanuel, God with us in our nature, in our sorrow, in our life work, in our punishment, in our grave, and now with us, or rather we with him, in resurrection, ascension, triumph, and second advent splendor. The resurrection is everything. Martin Luther, our Lord has written the promise of the resurrection, not in books alone, but in every leaf in springtime. John Calvin, let us consider this settled, that no one has made progress in the school of Christ who does not joyfully await the day of death and final resurrection. Sinclair Ferguson, we are adopted into God's family through the resurrection of Christ. The resurrection is crucial. From the dead in which he paid all our obligations to sin, the law and the devil in in whose family we once lived. Our old status lies in his tomb. A new status is ours through his resurrection. The resurrection is absolutely essential. Billy Graham, before the resurrection of Christ, the Holy Spirit came upon individuals only on certain occasions for special tasks. But now, after the resurrection, Christ through the Holy Spirit dwells in the hearts of every believer to give us supernatural power in living our daily lives. Eric Olson, whoever reads the New Testament seriously or gives thought to the impact on which the apostles made upon their generation must acknowledge that one outs- outstanding historic event alone spurred that small band of 11 ordinary men to an amazing task of evangelization to their generation, defying every obstacle, loss of home, persecution, even death itself. They evidence the supreme relevance in their ministry of the resurrection of Jesus. And lastly, John R.W. Stott, we live and die. Christ died and lived. The resurrection is everything. It's crucial. Without the resurrection, there is no Easter. So we have to, and rightly so, emphasize the cross of Christ. But as we emphasize the cross of Christ, we must also always, always talk about the resurrection. Now, as I said, based on that, now we can look at Matthew chapter 21. We're coming to the very last sermon in the Kings. As I said, we've gone through First and Second Kings for the last six months. Um, Jesus being the king is something that's very popular. Even Kanye wrote an album called Jesus is King. I haven't listened to all of it, but everybody at some point will know or knows now that Jesus is king. If they don't know now, they will know one day, as it says in Philippians chapter 2. So Jesus is king is what we're looking at. There's no other king besides King Jesus. And so I wanted to finish the book uh, of First and Second Kings by uh, this, with this sermon emphasizing all the attributes of Jesus being king. Zechariah chapter 9 verse 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation as he, humbled and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So this is the prophecy long before Jesus entered into what's called the triumphal entry, which we talked about last week. Um, and so this, this story of the triumphal entry, uh, because it's prophesied in Zechariah 9.9, Zechariah says, Behold your king. So the entire triumphal entry is about us seeing all the attributes of Jesus being the king. And so what we're going to look at today from Matthew chapter 21 um, is the, all the attributes of Jesus being king. So we're looking at uh, Jesus entering into Jerusalem into the final week of his life, humanly speaking, before the cross. Uh, and as we're looking at it, here's what I want you to see. If you're wondering, I wonder what the application would be today. I wonder what, what, what things I'm supposed to go do as I hear about all the attributes of Jesus being king. Um, there's not a whole lot for you to necessarily do today. The application is this. I want all of us, as we look at this text, all of us to see the breathtaking awe-inspiring, life-transforming picture of King Jesus this morning. And because of that, just want to be in absolute awe and wonder and worship Jesus. So the application is, let your heart be moved so that you would worship Jesus. That's what we would do. This is, by far, uh, the most important week of human history. This particular week, from the triumphal entry to the cross, 
What was your most important week in your life? Think about your most important week in your life ever. Maybe you haven't had it. Maybe it's coming up. But this particular week um, is not just the most important, maybe, week of Jesus' life, but I would say the most important week that's ever happened in all of human history. So much so that Matthew, in this book, devotes one-fourth of his entire gospel to this week. John devotes half of his book to this particular week. It's the most important week in human history. And as we look at Matthew chapter 21, uh, it's helpful to flip over one little page and look at Matthew chapter 20, verse 17. Because in verse 17 of Matthew chapter 20, there's a striking turn that happens where all of a sudden there's a turn towards Jerusalem. It says in this, And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem... He took 12 disciples aside, and on the way he said, so this, as he's going up to Jerusalem, this switch to Jerusalem that's happening, the turn in Matthew chapter 20, verse 17, is saying that he's wanting us to see that Jesus has set his face towards going and dying for the sins of everyone. So Jerusalem means going to the cross, going to die. And so verse 20, 17 sets that for us. And when he does that, as John, James, uh, James Boyce, a commentator, uh, looks at verse chapter 21, he says this, now in chapter 21 and the triumphal entry based on Zechariah 9, 9, which I read, Matthew is wanting us to see, the gospel writer Matthew is presenting to us now as Jesus, he's presenting Jesus as God's king. He is the king. So all the story of all the kings in First and Second Kings are finally being presented to us in Matthew ch- chapter 21 as here is the king that was, that, was ne- that was being prophesied in the First and Second Kings, but none of them ever, ever lived up to it. And here's Jesus, the king. And so he is the king of Jerusalem today. So as we're looking at the king of Israel, the king of Jerusalem, the, as we look at this text, what we want to do is just observe and be astounded at some of these attributes of our king. And I want us all to see the breathtaking, awe-inspiring, life-transforming picture of King Jesus this morning. Now, he could, have num- he could have entered Jerusalem in any number of ways. He could have decided to go in any number of ways. But he chose this humble entrance, walking in, or entering in on a cult. So look at verse 1. It says, now, Matthew 21, verse 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem uh, and came from Bethphage to go to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus sent his two disciples. This uh, drawing near to Jerusalem is drawing near to the city, as I said, from Matthew twenty seventeen, He knows entering into Jerusalem means that he's going into the cross and going to death. So drawing near to Jerusalem, he, as he's entering, he even knows what's about to happen. I'm going straight into the city to where I'm going to die at the end of this week. And it says, and saying to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey um, tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. The donkey and colt, which is only in Matthew, this is Jesus self-disclosing who he is. The secrecy that he had been, had for so long was now being lifted, and he's fulfilling scripture and getting these things and going in. As First Kings chapter 1 verse 33 if you remember David had Solomon ride in on a donkey whenever he was uh, going to be king and Jesus is going to ride in on a donkey just as Solomon did whenever he was becoming king Jesus is riding in on a donkey showing that he's now uh, fulfilling prophecy and pointing to the fact that just as Solomon was saying he was king and he signaled as he rose in rode in now Jesus is signaling that he's the king so this entrance on the donkey is helping us see Oh, this is King Jesus. And then we're going to see all the attributes of King Jesus. And then we'll, we'll see all these attributes. These are, these are just, I mean, just astounding. Verse 3. If anyone says to you, you shall, if anyone says to you, like, what are you doing taking these animals? You shall say, the Lord needs them. And he will send them at once. And here we see the word Lord. This is the word kurios. Uh, it can mean like, sir, like, yes, sir. But in this sense, he's saying that he is the Lord. He's claiming deity here. He's saying that I am divine. And so the first attribute of no other king besides King Jesus that we see is that he is the divine king. 
He is the divine king. He's saying the Lord needs them. This is quite striking. Jesus is calling himself God already as he's entering into this first week, saying sovereign over all things. And we'll see that he's sovereign because whenever the disciples get there, they're like, the guy's like, oh yeah, here you go, you can have it. God had already put, Jesus had already put it in this guy's mind that he's going to do it. And so he is the divine king. The second thing that we can see, um, if you keep going, uh, starting in verse 3, if anyone says to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them and he, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, here it is, verse 5. Here's a prophecy that we just read. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So as Matthew is quoting Zechariah 9, 9 here, not only is he the divine king, but the second thing that we can see about him is that he is the prophesied king. He is the prophesied king. There has been promises after promises after promises of this, pro- this Messiah coming, this king coming. And now he's coming in on this donkey, fulfilling Zechariah 9.9. He's the prophesied king. He is the one and the only one fulfilling these prophecies. Calvin on Zechariah 9.9 saying that he's the prophesied king says, The prophet here briefly shows the manner in which the church was to be restored for a king from the tribe of David would arise to restore all things. This king would not be like an earthly king who would rule for their own advantage. Jesus' kingdom would be for the common benefit of the whole people. So he's not a king that just makes his kingdom get big, but instead, since he is dying on the cross and resurrecting, it benefits every single person that's part of his kingdom. He's the prophesied king. Now, in Zechariah 9.9, uh, there's, some, there's some extra language that's not in uh, not in Matthew. So as a gospel writer writes, as they're inspired by the Holy Spirit, when they look into Old Testament scriptures, they are, because they are inspired by the Holy Spirit, able to grab verses from the Old Testament and bring into the New Testament and plop them in their gospel and say, here's what the Old Testament says. And they don't have to use every single bit of the language in that particular verse if they don't want to. They're, they're free, as the Holy Spirit has inspired them, to grab what they want and say, this is the right interpretation of that verse. But I wanted to point out a couple other things because as we read in Matthew 21, verse 5, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of the beast of, of burden. Matthew wanted to point out those particular things that the prophesy, prophecy was being fulfilled. But I want to go back to Zechariah 9, 9 and read it again because there's a couple things that he doesn't pull in that I thought would be helpful for us to look here. So in Zechariah 9.9, it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation. It's righteous, which is not in the Matthew text, which leads us to another attribute of our king. He's the divine king. He's the prophesied king. But he's also the righteous king from Zechariah 9.9. He is the righteous king. And as I said, Matthew doesn't include that, but Zechariah helps us understand that he's also the righteous king. He's completely righteous and holy. So um, picking up on the idea from Romans, where Paul, also an inspired writer, is talking about righteous King Jesus. Paul says this in Romans chapter 3. But now the the righteousness of God has been made manifest apart from the law. So you have law keeping in order to be righteous, but now it says the righteousness of God has been made manifest. Who's he talking about? He's not talking about a thing like law. He's talking about a person, and he's talking about Jesus. The righteousness of God, namely righteous King Jesus, has been made manifest. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, they do. They talk about, we just talked about Jesus being the prophesied king. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So he's saying the righteousness of God, namely Jesus, has been put forward and Jesus is righteous. But what about me? What am I going to do? And now he's going to say, if Jesus is righteous, now his righteousness has been given to me. And that's through faith. Let's keep reading. Whom God has put forward as a propitiation by his blood, that's that's the wrath absorber, 
by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, this is God being patient, um, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ Jesus. And because Jesus is the righteous king, now we can be made righteous. 1 Corinthians 1 says that Christ is our righteousness. Jeremiah 23 verse 6 says, And this is the name by which we will all be called. We will be called the Lord is our righteousness. So because he's the righteous king, now the Lord Jesus, the King Jesus, the righteous king, he's our righteousness. And we are only made righteous because of him. Charles Haddon Spurgeon writes this regarding Christ being our righteousness. He writes, It was irresistible grace that brought us to call him the Lord is our righteousness. It was that it was that divine shall be broke. It was that divine shall that be broken pieces and that broke our will. It was that strong arm that broke the iron sinew of our proud neck and made us bow. Even us who had not given this man, who would have not given this man to reign over us. It was his finger that opened the blind eye for once. We could, so, so now that we could see the beauty in him, it was his breath that thawed our icy heart. For once we felt no love for him. But now, as the hymn says, but now subdued by sovereign grace, our spiritual longs for his embrace, our beauty, this is our glorious dress. Jesus, the Lord, our righteousness. And this shall be our glory here and our song forever. The Lord, our righteousness. And so here we see in Zechariah 9 that he is the righteous king. And because he's the righteous king, now we can be declared righteous. Not only is he the righteous king, but look at Zechariah 9.9 with me. It says, behold, your king is coming to you righteous. And then it says, having salvation. Having salvation. Now, I want to point out one other thing in Matthew 21. In Matthew 21... Whenever Jesus is entering in verse 9, the crowd starts yelling. They say, and the crowd that went before him and following were shouting, Hosanna. Hosanna means the Lord saves. And so in verse 9, we see that he's having salvation. And in verse 9, the crowd is shouting, the Lord saves, which means this. Not only is Jesus our righteous king, but he's also our savior king. He is the Savior King. The only way in which salvation can be given to us is by Jesus. He's our saving King. So why, why, why the delay? If he's the saving King, why why is the second coming not happening? That was the first coming on a donkey. Why is the second coming not happening? Well, the reason why is simple. Because Jesus is the saving King. He's the saving King. Meaning this, 2 Peter chapter 3 Verse 9, the reason why he has not come back yet again is because he desires that men would be saved. He's the Savior King. He wants you, if you don't know Jesus, he wants you to be saved. The reason why he has not come back yet is because the full number has not come in. When the full number comes in, he will come back. But he hasn't, he's delaying because he's the Savior King. He is, as it says, bringing salvation and Hosanna, he's the one who saves. He's the only hope for us. He's the Savior King, and he hasn't come back yet. You can see 2 Peter 3, 9. I could preach a whole sermon on that, but I don't have time because I have more things to tell you about King Jesus. So uh, anyway, back to Matthew chapter 21. We just finished the prophecy in verse 5. And then so what what are the disciples going to do? What are the disciples going to do? They've been told to go get it, and this is what happens. Uh, Simple obedience. The disciples went and did as Jesus directed them. If I told you, hey, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go to this stranger's house and grab two animals and say, uh, I need your two animals. And, they're like, and the guy's like, what? You need my two animals? And I say, yeah. If, if, when he asked that, just tell him the Lord needs them. Uh, you would look at me like, ah, I don't think that's going to work. But when Jesus does it and tells his disciples, just tell the guy the Lord needs it. And when the guy hears that, the guy's like, oh, yeah, if the Lord needs them, you can take it. All that shows us that he is the king. But it also shows us this. The disciples, you know what they did? They obeyed. Simple obedience. Simple obedience. That's what the Lord calls us to do, and that's the way that we should live. Simple obedience. When Jesus tells us to do something, we should do it. The disciples went and did as Jesus directed them, even though it might have sound kind of strange. Verse 7. 
they brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks and he sat on them. This is to ride them. This is the only occasion where we hear of Jesus doing anything but walking. The only time. Usually, in every sense, as he's walking around, he's walking. This is the only time that we hear in the scriptures that he gets on an animal and ride it. And it's key. It's, it's, it's intentional. He's getting on a donkey so that he can ride into Jerusalem so he can fulfill prophecy from Zechariah 9.9. And so... Uh, the contrast is, is amazing here because he never, ever rides an animal at all the entire time he walks around the Gospels, except for here, he rides a donkey. Now, there is one other place in Scripture where he rides, a don- rides an animal, but it's not till later at the second coming. So here, the reason why he's riding in on a donkey is to show us that he is really, really humble. There is a contrast um, the, this king's riding in on this donkey's foal where most human kings would choose a massive steed to ride into the city to display to everybody that I am the king. And on that day, Jesus, one day Jesus will do that on the second coming. There will be a day where he rides a horse into battle, as it says in Revelation 19, 11. Then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse and one sitting on it called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. So one day he's going to come riding on a white horse into battle and destroy all things. But here, he does not ride on the white horse. Instead, he enters the city on a donkey. So humble. The first entrance could have been like Revelation 19. But instead, it's on a donkey, which signals to us the fifth thing about our king. Not only is he the savior king, he is the humble king. He is the humble king. There's no one like him. There's no one like him. He is not prideful. He is not arrogant. He is gentle and loving. He's humble. He's the humble king. Now as you keep reading, most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Here you see cloaks on the road and branches. And Charles Spurgeon sees this and writes, Our first parents in their shame made clothes of leaves of trees, but now both clothes and leaves are at the feet of man's redeemer, with no shame, with no shame. Verse 9, which we've already read, um, whenever they're screaming, the crowds that went before him and were following were shouting, Hosanna, which means, um, Lord save us, uh, to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And so they're shouting shouts of praise, but they're also shouting a, a cry of deliverance. As it says in Psalm 118, 25, save us, we pray, O Lord, save us. And Psalm 118, 19 and 20 says, open for me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. It's the opening psalm I read. Um, this is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. Just as Jesus is entering the gates of Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, righteousness is going to be given to all men by what takes place in Jerusalem. Salvation is coming to the whole world as he enters into Jerusalem. And that's what he's signaling. Um, in John chapter 12, in, in a parallel gospel where this story is being told, in John chapter 12, he, uh, he adds a little phrase to it. So in John chapter 12, verse 13, this is what John says um, on this parallel text. John chapter 12, uh, I'm going to read it, verse 13. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Even, and then it says, <clears throat> the king of Israel. Now John adds that little phrase, the king of Israel. Of Israel to what the crowds were shouting. Matthew just says they're yelling Hosanna to the son of David, Hosanna in the highest. But John tells us that whenever they're yelling Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel, the king of Israel. So as they took these palm branches and they went out, uh, they're yelling the king of Israel. Now this whole triumphal entry, as I've said, is signaling to us that this man walking in is the king and as we see, he's the king of Israel, which brings us to our uh, next one. He's not only the humble king, he's the messianic king. He's the king of Israel. This messianic king 
which was promised, which we've been going through the king. So we should all feel the weight of this. We should feel the weight as it says that he's the son of David and that John writes he's the king of Israel. All the kings that were walked through First and Second Kings, all of them were terrible. And here, God had said in, in, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, I am going to put from you, David, from your line, there will be one that finally comes who will be the Messiah. He will come. And so as we're going through the king, is this king it? Is this king it? Is this king it? Is this king it? Over and over. It's not him. It's not him. And they get progressively worse, progressively worse. And then the whole kingdom kind of is destroyed. And we're wondering, is God going to fulfill this promise? Is 2 Samuel 7 going to be fulfilled? Is it going to happen? And here, as we're looking at the triumphant entry, Jesus is walking in, and John's for sure in chapter 12, 13 to help us see, he is the king of Israel. Finally, finally the promise is being fulfilled by God. 2 Samuel 7 is here. Here he is. He's the messianic king. Woo! Jesus is finally here. The thing has finally been prophesied, that's been prophesied is being fulfilled. We should all, as we've gone through the kings, feel that excitement saying, yes, God keeps his promises. Praise him. Jesus is here. He's the messianic king. And now we go to verse 10. And when he entered Jerusalem, when he entered Jerusalem, this would be the last city, last city that he would ever enter. And all of this, all the, this is known uh, as he's entering Jerusalem. All, he's doing all this knowing that as he walks into the city, he's going to die. And it says this, he entered Jerusalem. Those three words should give us pause and just be. I said at the beginning, as we see this, we should be awe inspired. He got up to the point. This is the, you know, the proverbial line in the sand. And what does Jesus do? He obeys God the Father. He entered Jerusalem. Verse 10. He entered Jerusalem. Jesus takes this step forward. If you remember the turn that I talked about in Matthew 20, 17, where he says, and he was going up to Jerusalem. This is Jesus going up to Jerusalem. And now, uh, as I was reading uh, chapter 20, verse 17, that's the, that's the turn that Matthew uses in the text. I didn't read verse 18, but I want to read verse 18 because verse 18 tells us, Jesus tells him, I got to go up to Jerusalem. And as he is obeying and walking into Jerusalem, he tells him before it happens, this is what's going to happen. Matthew chapter 20, verse 17 and 18. As he was going up to Jerusalem, that's the turn. Here it is. He took the 12 disciples aside and on the way he said to them, here it is. Read verse 18 in chapter 20 in light of the fact that he entered Jerusalem in verse 10. And now we're going to see what it means for him to obey. Verse 18 of chapter 20. See, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged. And crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Matthew chapter 20, verse 18. We need to hear that he knows everything that's going to happen to him in chapter, 10, chapter 21, verse 10, when he enters Jerusalem, because he just told us in 2018 everything that's going to happen, and yet he walks in the city completely obedient to God the Father. Now, the question that is out there is this. If he knows all this is going to happen to him, why would he do it? Why would he do that? There's two big reasons, right? One, because he's, going to, because he's God and he's going to obey the will of the Father all the way through. But there's also a second reason. And it has to do with you and me. It has to do with you and me and this whole world. Why would Jesus do that for us? Because he loves us. He loves us far more than we could ever imagine. He loves us so much that he is willing to walk into the city to the point of death where they're going to do these things. Mock him, flog him, and crucify him. Have a false trial. He's willing to do all these things because he loves us. Which brings us to our next attribute of our king. Not only is he the messianic king, he's also the loving king. He would walk into a city out of love for his father, out of love for his glory, and out of love for us. 
He's the loving king. As a matter of fact, Luke chapter 19, verse 41, another parallel text to this. Luke chapter 19 records him as he's walking over uh, into Jerusalem. It writes this, because he loves Jerusalem and the people so much. In verse chapter 19, 41, he looks upon the city and he wants so badly for them to repent and come to the Lord. He literally weeps over the city. It's putting on display for us the great love that Jesus has. It says this, And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known this day the things that were made for peace. You can feel the deep love that he has for his people. And that's why he walks into Jerusalem. This should be how we think about unbelievers. As Jesus looks at Jerusalem and weeps for them, this is the same way that we should feel towards unbelievers. That we would be stirred for them and pray for them. This is how you, this is how you should feel towards them. And if you're an unbeliever, you should believe that you would trust Jesus this morning and be saved. Now, this is what happens. Uh, and he entered the city, and here's what happens. The whole city was stirred up. The whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? Now, I just want to, I just want to kind of take that verse and kind of rip it out, and let's just look at something for a second, right? He enters Jerusalem. The whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? When most of the people were following Jesus, um, and Jesus would go into cities, this would send the religious institution, the religious people, and the religious establishment at the time into panic. They didn't know what to do because they were losing their grip, and it would send panic through the city. Um, This is not a plea for anarchy, um, but it's a definite plea for action. It's a plan for action. We we see that there, uh, when Jesus walks in, that everything changes for them. And so when Jesus enters a city, the whole city gets stirred up saying, who is this? When I read that, this is what I think. When Jesus enters a city, It gets stirred up and the people in the city start saying, who is this? And I pray that Jesus would do that to our city. That Jesus would enter into our city so much so that all the people of our city are stirred. And there's a big stirring in the city so much that everybody around us that doesn't know Christ is saying, who is this? Let's pray for that. Somebody somebody say amen to that. Because that's good stuff. If Jesus walks into the city and it's stirred up, then if he enters in in such a way that we really believe, then all of a sudden people will start saying, who is this? That's what we should pray for in this city. Jesus shows up so much in the city that every unbeliever is saying, who is this Jesus? Now, verse 11. And the crowds started saying, well, this is the prophet Jesus from, G- from Galilee. And here's what Jesus does. As he enters into, uh, this is a pretty famous text. You've probably heard it a lot of times. You know, Jesus throws over the tables. This is what it says. Um, Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables from the money changers in the seats uh, and all those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer and you make it into a den of of robbers, So he drove them out. Jesus is not going to allow the travesty of what's going on where they're selling the pigeons, etc. And so he's overturning tables. He's overturning seats. And if you've been for a Christian for a while, uh, we all kind of love this right here because sometimes Jesus gets picked on, you know, with people that don't really know what they're talking about. Jesus gets picked on as, the, as kind of a wimpy guy that just walks around and doesn't do anything. And so we love to point out this Jesus. Yeah, well, Don't you know this Jesus, the, the table-turning Jesus? Uh, He doesn't take junk from people. I love this Jesus. Um, But it's wise for us to make sure we understand why this is happening. Uh, This this text isn't written so that we can point out that Jesus isn't a wimp. That's not really the point of the text. Uh, There's there's more going on in here. In verse 13, he says, um, you make it a den of robbers. He's telling that you're He's quoting Jeremiah 7, 11, when he says, Has this house, which has been called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. 
And so here he's pointing out that you are just like what's going on in Jeremiah 7, 11. And the chapter uh, is clear at the outset in verse 2, which uh, they have come now to start worshiping. Uh, they, they go in, in, in chapter uh, 7 of Jeremiah, it says that they've come to worship God, but they go through the land and they steal and they murder and they commit adultery. They oppress the poor. And all of this is just an abomination that's going on in Jeremiah 7. All that's happening. And he's saying, just like what's going on there, it's going on here. And Jesus absolutely will not have it here in Jerusalem anymore with his people. So what's the turning over the tables about? It's not about showing that Jesus isn't a wimp. Instead, the main point is this. Jesus is showing that he will not tolerate sin among his people. He will not tolerate sin. And so Jesus is going to deal with our sin. He's not just going to let it exist and, not, and act like it's no big deal. He's not just going to say, well, I don't see it. And so as we see Jesus overturning the tables here, we also see another attribute. And he's, the last one was the loving king. Not only is Jesus the loving king, the next attribute we see is that Jesus is the holy king. Verses 12 and 13. Jesus is the holy king. And um, Charles Spurgeon says, Herein let every subject of King Jesus imitate the king. Let us lean upon Jehovah's strength. Let us joy in by our unstaggering faith. Let us exult in our thankful songs. Our holiness comes from Jesus. He's the holy king overturning the table saying he will not tolerate it. And he's saying, I will not tolerate sin in your life. I will not tolerate it. And so we should strive. When we hear this, when he comes in um, to turn over all these tables, he's saying, uh, while people are coming in here, uh, and this, this place is supposed to be a place for worship, uh, and they're making a den of robbers, they're coming here, instead of worshiping God, they're worshiping them, themselves, they're, they're, they're idolatry, and they're wanting to make a buck, and they're making, uh, they're making it an abomination to, to the Lord. And so they came to offer worship to the temple, but while they were there, they did whatever they wanted, and they didn't walk with God, and instead, they turned it into a place where they didn't walk with God, but a place that they just tried to make money. And so they were coming to worship, but they didn't worship because before they came, they weren't walking with God. And so as we come on Sundays, we should come here to worship. And the way that's going to happen is the same way with them, that we walk with God Monday through Saturday. And so Jesus, the Holy King, is coming in to cleanse the temple. But as he's coming to cleanse the temple and purify it, he's showing that he's also coming to cleanse and purify us. And he demands holiness from us. Jesus is the king who demands holiness. He overturns hideouts, hideouts for criminal, uh, these hide, this hideout for criminals that are going against God. And he wants to restore it to a place of prayer for God. Jesus is the holy king that doesn't deal with sin lightly. Instead, with righteous anger. And so here's the really, really good news. This holiness that he demands from us. Here's the really good news. God has dealt with the sin, not lightly, but with righteous anger. And so these criminals where he's overturning the tables and he's saying, you're making this place a, a, a den of robbers. We're no different than them. And he's demanding holiness from them. And he's demanding holiness from us. And here's the good news. Um, he has given us his righteousness. He has paid the price for us. The really good news is that Christ has dealt with sin on the cross. Jesus took the place of us criminals. And now the cross and the resurrection scream out to us. They scream out, we are now cleansed and purified. Just as he does that to the, to the temple, he's telling us that that's what he does for us. And now the church is now a place for us criminals to come and all sinners are beckoned to come and come freely and drink deep of this great gospel good news that Jesus Christ took our punishment for us and now we are free. He says, and these are some of the most beautiful verses in the Bible. I've read them numerous times. He says, come to me all who who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest from your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. If you're not a believer in Christ, he's calling to you and he's saying, you can be cleansed, you can be purified. The holy king can make you holy. And this is how, Romans chapter 10, 
verse 9 and 10 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with your heart you believe and are justified. That means declared innocent. And with your mouth you're confessed and saved. For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Verse 13, Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So trust in Jesus this morning. Trust in the Holy King. He's the one that died on the cross for us and was resurrected. So what are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to do? I said the main goal today is that you would be awe-inspired. Here's what you should do. You should give him praise. You should give him praise this morning. Second, uh, you should begin an unbelievably huge prayer life. He says this is supposed to be a house of prayer. Uh, things won't change if we don't pray. So we should give him praise. We should also be pr- prayer warriors. And lastly, um, as it says, we should also be healed by him. Look at verse 14. And the blind and the lame came to him into the temple and they were healed. This is contrasting Jeremiah 7 where they were being oppressed. And Jesus invites them in and he heals them. And so you, if you're not a believer in Christ, need to be healed spiritually. Confess your sin, be forgiven, and the cross and the resurrection of Jesus make that possible and that you can be completely forgiven. Charles Spurgeon says this, We too came into the assembly of saints at one time spiritually blind and lame, but Jesus opened our eyes and healed us in our lameness. If he sees anything amiss with us now, We are sure he will not drive us away from his courts, but he will heal us at once. Let all come to him now. Amen. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you so much for this fact, as we look at this text, that you are the king. Thank you that we can see all throughout the kings that you had promised, uh, God, you had promised that there would be a king that would come, and none of them lived up to it. And then you gave us King Jesus the Holy King, the Humble King, the Savior King, the Messiah King, the Messianic King. You are our King. And like, unlike any other King, you've come to rule the entire world and you are a benevolent King that loves us. And because you were obedient all the way to the cross, we are all glorious beneficiaries of that. The cross and the resurrection show us God, just how much you love us. And they show us that we can be made holy and pure. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the resurrection. Thank you for being risen. And now, because of that, there's a promised resurrection for us one day. We pray this all in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.